Today we've got Roy Taylor, and if you don't know who Roy Taylor is, you just don't know type 2 diabetes research. He's been leading the way uh, for a long time, but has really driven home uh, the, yeah, the methods around type 2 diabetes reversal. So it's something I've, I've followed quite closely. Welcome, Roy. How are you going? Doing very well, thanks, Ray. It's good to be uh, good to be talking to you from the other side of the world. <laughs> Indeed, but the world is very small these days, despite uh, despite our pandemic. Yeah, yeah. Look, let, let's jump straight into it. And you know, you've been working with type two diabetes uh, around that area for a while. What, what was a dawning moment when you thought to yourself, "Wait up! This this could be reversible." Well. There was a long run-up to that dawning moment in that I'd been chasing what happened to food in the body and discovering that 30% of our meal carbohydrate ends up in muscle glycogen. But if it doesn't, as in people who are insulin resistant, then it's just got to be stored as fat. And that led me on to investigating liver fat. And then all of a sudden, we could see the whole pattern because, hey, we're dealing with a simple disease. This is the commonest disease of Homo sapiens. And yet all the complexity around could not possibly explain that. And looking hard at this and thinking about it, I came up with the twin cycle hypothesis in 2006. So that was really the eureka moment when I saw that if people were eating just a little bit extra each day, especially if they had this insulin resistance in muscle, then the body would be shunting that into fat. The fat in the liver would build up. That would actually directly cause more glucose to be produced by the liver. That's the big source of glucose in our bodies. But also, the fat would spill over and silt up throughout the body. And that would include the pancreas. And we knew for some, from some brilliant work by Roger Unger back in the 1990s that if you take isolated islets, and expose them to excess fat for a few days, then they begin to stop responding acutely to glucose. So we could explain everything in a wanna, but that was just the twin cycle hypothesis. And so I then had to turn around and really find out if this was robust. And then setting about trying to destroy your own hypothesis, well, that was the next phase of the work. That's great. And so... um was that where you started working in towards the counterpoint study, was it? That, that's absolutely right, because quite clearly we could destroy this hypothesis in a wanna. And that, of course, that's what science is all about. You've got to try and destroy your hypothesis. Anyone who goes about trying to prove their own hypothesis has rather missed the point. So I could see that if we were to suddenly drop the food intake of folk with ordinary type 2 diabetes, and if sugar didn't return to normal and the pancreas didn't recover, then I was wrong. And I completely failed to destroy the hypothesis because in that group of people with very ordinary type 2 diabetes, the fasting sugar level became normal, not just significantly reduced, it became normal in seven days. And the pancreas showed a very interesting response. The change was much more gradual there, but by eight weeks, amazingly, the beta cells had woken up. Now, bear in mind that the whole expert world of diabetes believed that beta cell death or apoptosis was the cause of type 2 diabetes. Well, no, we're seeing that the beta cells were merely dormant, and you could wake them up at least uh, in early type 2 diabetes. Yeah, and I've got to say that as I was following your research, as it's been going on over the last sort of yeah, 10 or so years, it's really been like I've seen it in my own work. Like I don't have the labs and things where we work out in the bush with our programs, but in medical centers and the response we saw, especially within those seven days. Uh, and then, yeah, we've got people that have got off insulin after 20, 30 years, and it's been three, four, five, six years now. And um, yep. and their body's working fine, and there'll be a lot of you. You would have heard it before. Oh no! But once they go back to their old ways of eating, they're gonna the diabetes will come back. No, I haven't seen that. 
Yes, that's absolutely right. Because of course that uh, that criticism was raised uh, for uh, my work. The diabetes is going to inevitably creep back, but of course it doesn't, because we now know the reason. Under the stress of the excess fat around the beta cells, the beta cells don't die. They just lose their specialist function. What they do is very sensible. They go into a selfish mode and they stop working for the body. They just work to keep themselves alive. So forget this insulin production nonsense. They're going to just hunker down. But if you take away the fat, then they can come out of their shells, as it were, and just start performing again. Now, there's clearly uh, some genetic influences here. For a start, some people can be as fat as they like and they'll never get type 2 diabetes. Interestingly, that's the majority of us. If we look at people with a BMI of a 45, only 28% have got type 2 diabetes. So that's the majority. People do not have beta cells that are uh, sensitive to fat and glucose oversupply, but some people do. and. There's a further property because I've just described the susceptibility of the beta cell to fat. If the, the individual can actually have resilient beta cells so they can hunker down, they can go into their self-protect mode and stay hunkered down but retaining the ability to recover for years, even decades as we've seen, then they have resilience. And that has to be a genetic factor. So having determined those two factors, the geneticists ought to get busy because we've shown the phenotyping. Come on, boys, show us the genotyping. Interestingly, almost all the genetic influences uh, shown for type 2 diabetes relate to genes that are to do with beta cell function. So you see, this does tie together. And I know from my own observations that once diabetes goes away, provided there's no weight regain, then it stays away. And my longest duration patient is now 16 and a half years and running. So we can be quite clear about the possibilities here. And what uh, percentage of the population with type 2 diabetes do you think is it, it's possible to achieve remission? That's, that's a very good question. And the answer is far higher proportion than most doctors would imagine. Now, when we went out to recruit for the direct study, which uh, once we'd sorted out the cause of type 2 diabetes and shown also in our next study that it was relatively short duration diabetes we were looking at reversing, say up to six years, just to pick a target, then we set out in primary care to uh, try and uh, demonstrate whether or not ordinary primary care staff could do this just in routine NHS UK practice. And GPs were pretty down in the mouth about recruitment because we were recruiting by getting the GPs to send out letters to their own patients. That usually produces about 6%. 6% positive responses who actually join, the, join any research study. We got 28% indirect. So there's a huge appetite out there, which is unrecognized by doctors. Stop a doctor in the street and say, how many of your patients with type 2 diabetes would lose uh, 15 kilograms in weight? Said, none of them, none of them. And they're wrong. That's a brilliant thing. They're absolutely wrong. So coming back to your question, at least a third of people are very interested in this. Probably much more because joining a research program is a big cause on time. Lots of people will have said, I just can't give up all those days every two years to do that. So if we say maybe uh, half of all people are genuinely interested in getting rid of it, what happened in direct? Well, at two years, there was still one third of the group that were free of diabetes off all medication. So if we just take our half and say, well, what's a third of that? 
Maybe we're looking about 15% of the whole population of folk with diabetes who not only want to get rid of the diabetes, but also can lose the weight and keep it off. Now, it's really important we don't indulge in any pejorative wording around this, because some people are just not in a social position, a family position, a work position, whatever, to be able to do this. So individuals are individuals. The job of the doctor is to realize that the diagnosis of type 2 diabetes is a medical emergency, and they can offer a choice. Either you can try and get rid of it, or we've got pills and potions, and we can supervise your demise. So, you know, there's a clear choice there, but doctors need to recognize that there is an appetite out there to really do something about the diabetes. And the typical medical attitude, oh, my patients won't do anything, is learned behavior. It's learned helplessness from doctors and nurses. Yeah, I, look, I have to agree. I, um, I've just got a program running in a remote community at the moment, a regional remote community of 2,700 people through a medical centre. And, you know, we, we got out there and they, they, they actually asked me to come out. So I, I wasn't sort of uh, out there selling anything. And so we, we went out there, set up a program through the AMS, the Aboriginal Medical Service. Uh, in 12 months, they've put about 110 people through and they've been able to uh, just over 1,000 kilos. So they've... You know, and this is this is a nurse, a practice nurse who's never run a lifestyle program before, and you know it, it's been fantastic. You know, and it's really they've got people travelling from an hour away. So, what what they've found is that people are very interested. Um, and to tell you the truth, I, th- I think a lot of doctors would be, but they just want something that they know they they can actually provide. Um, what I, what I find you know interesting is, you know patients often get the blame for um, not not uh, getting the results when we refer them through to a, to the dietitian and the physiologist and the endocrinologist. But I, I like to get into a room when I'm speaking, I say, tell me the best thing about having type 2 diabetes. And uh, people will just be looking at you like, what? What's this bloke on about? <laughs> because no one wants it. Yep, absolutely. There is a first out there and somehow getting this message through to uh, the doctors is just such an important thing. Now, you touched on lifestyle there, and that that raises a really important point, especially for yourself, Ray, with a background in exercise uh, physiology. Exercise is wonderful. Personally, I love it. Uh, But we have to be absolutely goal-directed with what we're advising for any one person. If a person wants to feel really good and uh, have uh, a healthy heart, then embarking on an exercise program is exactly what they should do. If a person wants to lose weight, then they have to restrict their foodstuffs. And as part of the weight loss phase of our programs, we ask people not to increase the amount of exercise they do. Sure, carry on doing whatever you do. Some some individuals were already exercising. We've had a few weightlifters. We've had uh, people who do various other sports. Please carry on, but don't start a new program because if you do, you will indulge in compensatory eating, partly conscious, partly subconscious, And this is not a one-size-fits-all because the person in front of you is highly likely with their type 2 diabetes to be no longer young and also heavier than they used to be. And those individuals shouldn't be starting an exercise program to lose weight. They need to reduce what they eat to lose weight when they're at target. And this is the crunch. We need a way of sustaining that weight loss. And the best way, the clearest message from the whole of the obesity literature is that a combination of very modest calorie restriction and increased daily physical activity, doesn't have to be exercise, but moving more, is the best way ahead. So two things about exercise. It's not a good way for people with type 2 diabetes to lose weight. But Physical activity is certainly to be promoted in the long term to try and keep the weight down and prevent the weight regain. So 
clarity of thought and goal-directed behavior on the part of doctors and others is really important. And so often these messages get confused and people talk about lifestyle as though there was one lifestyle that everyone ought to do to be a good person. <laughs> and that's not so. Yeah. And and you, you were speaking about the, the food uh, reduction. And, and I know with what you guys, you're seeing it at about 800, 850 calories per day. So that, that caloric restriction plays an important role in uh, improving that insulin sensitivity in the liver and so on, doesn't it? Yes, it does. And I adopted this program. Uh, well, I, I devised the original uh, uh, weight loss diet, which was 600 calories from uh, three liquid uh, meal replacements per day plus a pile of non-starchy vegetables. And that still is our gold standard. We have tried other ways, but this is, this is the best way of doing it. Um, and uh, using that, we get a very rapid weight reduction. Of course, if people don't lose weight, <laughs> they're eating much more uh, than what I just described. And we know how much they should be losing because in the first seven days of this, the average weight loss is three and a half kilograms. Now, that causes people to say, oh, that's awfully fast. Is that dangerous? No, absolutely not. This is one of the huge misconceptions put, a, put about by dietitians and nutritionalists and it just has no basis. Uh, we've now been doing this for 15 years. I've had a huge email influx of reports of how people have got on from around the world. Uh, and we're not aware of any adverse events directly due to the sudden reduction. So yes, a sudden reduction. And two things, it's auto-motivating. People feel so good so fast, they stick with it. And the second thing is, at that level of calorie intake, remarkably, it's not associated with very troublesome hunger in most people. Now, that comes as a complete revelation to people, because everybody knows if you cut down a little bit, as is the conventional advice to lose weight, you feel hungry every day. So uh, do you want a miserable rest of life, or do you just want to accept you've got to do it? Just do it get your weight down in a two-month period or even three-month period. And then you can engage upon the rest of your life, first of all, making sure you enjoy it. Secondly, following some very simple guidance. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And um, yeah, I've always sort of smiled a bit about the whole rapid weight loss issue that we we, we get taught at university, you know, and um, it's... Um, you know, when you look back at all the research over the years, like one of the greatest predictors of long-term success is actually, you know, success in the short term right after, you know, right from the start, those first few months. Um, that was probably a bit of a, you know, uh, like it blew me away when I first come across that years ago. You know, that would have been about 2008, 2009. And I just was, you know, it really took me back. And so, um, yeah, I've, I've been actively promoting that kind of thing. But like say, you know, when you are getting like with the direct trial, you know, so many people uh, coming off medication, we probably should sort of touch on that, I guess, that basically, you know, you, you've got patients who are coming through their medical center. They are um, recruited because they've got, they're within six years of diagnosis. They're not on injectable medications. They're on um, oral medications for type 2 diabetes uh, and they're taken off that and blood pressure medications right from the start, which is important as well. And then they're on the low calorie diet and uh, the meal replacements um, for you know, what, what must be like 12 to 16 weeks or something. Was it somewhere around that? And yeah, that's your rapid weight loss phase, which you were talking about with the yeah discussion. Yes, that's right. Now, what you've just described is the is a direct study. Um and this was a, a joint program uh, that I ran together with Mike Lean, who's got a background of obesity research. And following the counterpoint study, he'd actually uh, put this into practice by rolling out this idea into primary care for in simple obesity. When I say simple obesity, I just mean obesity per se. And... So the two of us came together to run direct, and we had to decide which approach to use for the weight loss. Now, I already knew it didn't matter because 
uh, of reports from individuals saying, this is how I did it, using ordinary foodstuffs. Other people used a milk diet, for instance. They just got the weight down. Now, there are some nutritional points about just making it as reasonable as possible, but anyway goes. And so for direct, we decided to use about 800 calories as four liquid replacement meals a day. Uh, and that would be simple for primary care staff to treat. And yes, we used a 12-week basic period of time. But there's something interesting. It's, it's there in the publications, but few people comment on it. It was 12 weeks of the diet, but if individuals had personal targets they wanted to fulfill, they could actually stay in it for longer to a maximum of 20 weeks. And punters from the side said, no one's going to stay in it a day longer than they have to. It's awful taking this awful diet. Guess what? The median duration of treatment was 16 weeks. The median. In other words, almost everybody said, yeah, I'd like to stay in it a bit longer. And that points out one of the, the true uh, difficulties of this is transiting from the liquid formula diet back to ordinary eating. And we noticed this quite early on. In fact, it came up in the reports of people on CounterPoint, our very first study. And so in the next study called CounterBalance, we built in a stepped food reintroduction. And the CounterBalance uh, uh, study was hugely useful in setting the course for direct in terms of stopping antihypertensives, in terms of the stepped food reintroduction, in terms of you name it. Um, so that's, that's the program that we used in primary care. And purely by training the primary care nurses, and we did this in a structured training program so that it was re repeatable, and it was eight hours of structured training, we demonstrated that at one year, 46% of people had no diabetes off all medication. And even at two years, uh, people were still uh, 33, 36%, sorry, off medication and free of diabetes. So a huge triumph. And the people, by the way, in whom the diabetes had come back, of course, were those people who'd put on the most weight. Because life goes on, and it's a genuine challenge to keep the weight off. I wouldn't minimize the difficulty of that third phase. Getting it down, losing 15 kilograms, much easier than you'd expect. The careful, specified transition back to normal eating, you can do that. Long-term dealing with life, when you've got illness in the family, a hole in the roof, your dog falls ill, you name it, all the stresses of life, then just keeping your food intake down and away from your usual default position as was, that's a real class act. So this is the real difficulty that people face in the, in the long term. And it's one that we don't have a tremendously satisfactory answer to at the moment. Those who can do, and we see the benefits of it. Uh, I think possibly with a new range of weight loss and weight loss maintaining drugs coming online, we might see some pharmacological help for this phase, but that's a little way off down the road. At the moment, we know the biology if you keep your weight down, diabetes stays away. And we know 100% certainty. Now, in the fuzzy mists of type 2 diabetes, 100% certainty is unusual. But there's 100% certainty that someone's diabetes will come back if their weight goes back to normal. They can be doing anything else they like. But if the weight goes back, that fat's going to creep back into liver and pancreas. You get diabetes again. So it's been... An interesting journey trying to establish some fixed points in, in type 2 diabetes, but I think we have uh, managed to do just that. And what we're talking about here is remission, which is just absolutely the, the gold standard of what we would like to achieve. But I could imagine even the people who didn't achieve uh, full remission still had improvements. And, and when you consider, like in Australia, the last complete uh, research across the country was 2016, and it showed that less than 50% of all people with type 2 diabetes achieve a uh, HbA1c under 7, which is the target. So we're, we're well off even pulling pulling the reins in. So the difference of even just implementing 
a half successful program is going to be far greater than the progression we're seeing now with like what is I think the estimation too is uh, around 50% of people diagnosed now will be on insulin within 10 years. That's correct. And uh, the the fact is that even if people don't achieve remission, and by the way, the UK consensus definition of remission is HbA1c less than 48 millimoles per mole or 6.5% maintained for at least six months off all drugs after some weight loss. Now, there is uh, an ADA, EASD, Diabetes UK international consensus document that's been submitted for publication. And I shouldn't, uh, shouldn't comment upon those, uh, those items still yet to be published, but uh, if we just stick with the British one, we won't be, uh, uh, we'll be banged on the nose, in fact, few details of difference. And so we can talk about the diagnostic level for diabetes being the remission line. As you say, some people can come down from a very high HbA1c to a much better HbA1c, usually with a lesser number of tablets, sometimes stopping their insulin, because stopping insulin in type 2 diabetes is not a difficult matter with some weight loss. So yes, people are better off uh, with uh, ideally 15 kilograms weight loss, And if anyone's havering about this, I think it's a really useful tool to have in the medical toolkit to be able to say, look, what people say having lost 10 10 to 15 kilograms is, commonest comment, I feel 10 years younger. Well, who wouldn't want to feel 10 years younger? It's a no-brainer. Now, I heard you speak uh, Glasgow, uh, Eco. 2019, it must have been. Yep, uh, last session of the day it was, and um, and one thing I remember that stuck in in my mind was, you know, that these are still early days, and and I, it really hit home because obviously the research you've been doing has really got that ball rolling, like really got a lot of interest around the world, and and I agree too that whilst it's phenomenal, it's it's fantastic, it's it's really you know, it's going to save a lot of lives. The 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 real process from here is how do we get that working in primary care across the world? And also, like you say, the long-term effects. And that's why primary care, I think, is so important because that's where people are going to have the most common points of contact through their treatment throughout their lives. So we need to have that consistent care across the medical centers around the country and make it mainstream. Indeed. And, you know, there are some points associated with that which are worth making. One is that doctors are trained to prescribe drugs, and there's a lot of focus on drugs. And indeed, the money speaks, and the pharmaceutical companies have tended to take over the big meetings with these ridiculous large studies that shows new agent produces half percent fall in HbO1c and everyone cheers. Uh, Now, there's no training on de-prescribing 100%. And doctors were just a bit concerned on hearing that if they joined the direct trial, the oral agents would be stopped. But they they came round to that because, you know, they figured that was was probably okay with appropriate testing. The thing that they really balked at was stopping the antihypertensives. Ah, you can't do that. You know, blood pressure is important until we showed them the data. And the data we showed them was the blood pressure data from the counterpoint, uh, sorry, the counterbalance study. During counterpoint, our first study, we observed that some people on antihypertensives got postural hypertension. Their blood pressure had dropped. So for the second study, we asked people to stop the antihypertensives at the time. Now, we were doing this in a research center, so that was easy to do. But by using the data that we gathered, showing the very distinct fall in blood pressure in counterbalance in the first uh, seven days, maintained at six months, we were able to persuade doctors to de-prescribe. So de-prescribing, it's a big act. Stop the medicines and make your patient better. Now, clearly, that's got to be set in context, but it's a new concept 
for medical care, and it's such an important one. So we do need to revisit that uh, that critical part of what doctors do. Yeah, no, look, I totally agree, and it's one of our obstacles that we have. I, I work in regional and remote areas, and quite often we've got locum doctors that are travelling in and out for six or seven weeks, and they're not they don't know much about the patient's background, so they're less likely to be prescribed. But if you've got someone losing weight and they're not de-prescribing um, their insulin, then the, other, well, the, the only thing you can do is feed them up so they don't have hypos and so they don't lose weight and they stop the program. Um, you know, my, one of the endocrinologists, uh, one of the top researchers in Australia, she, um, she said to me that she believes with a, with a good quality program, uh, no one really requires or pretty much no one requires insulin for type 2 diabetes with the other drugs we've got. Uh, to work with as well, so I guess that's that's the sort of goal we've got to all work with, but work towards. But you know, like you say, the de-prescribing doctors aren't confident in that area, and I guess until we get some more studies around that, or at least uh, experience around that, then uh, and I know David Unwin did a great paper, him and his team, last year, I think it was. Yep. Uh, and so we we share that around as much as we can as well. Yes. Yes. And of course, David has done great work with pulling together his data. Uh, as David and I have actually been working fairly closely. I showed him how to do the statistics for his first his first paper. Um, and, you know, we've been in touch ever since. Um, David's tended to put emphasis on the low-carb diet uh, but in fact, what he's doing is achieving very good weight loss through using a low-carb route. Now, that's fine if you're uh, charismatic and you make it very clear what you need. Uh, but it's it leads to one of the confusions in this field, whereby large commercial companies have leapt on this bandwagon and are spreading misinformation about uh, fiddling with the macronutrient composition. It doesn't matter whether you're a high-carb eater, uh, for instance, in some agricultural settings such as South Asia, uh, that would apply, or whether you're living a traditional Inuit lifestyle, and so you have a high fat intake. It doesn't matter. You can get diabetes with either of those. But uh, it's the calorie content because type 2 diabetes is caused by excess fat in liver and pancreas. And only by reducing total body fat can you get on top of that. Certainly, with a low carb intake, you can minimize the excursions in glucose after each meal. But that's not where diabetes is. We've known right since the early days of the United Kingdom Prospective Diabetes Study, which started back in the 70s, um, that uh, the uh, blood glucose will inexorably go up over the years, no matter how well-controlled, in inverted commas, uh, a person's diabetes is. And that brings me to a really important point. One of the criticisms that experts like to uh, lob at me is that, look, this isn't really diabetes going away. It's, it's an illusion. All you're doing is getting uh, really good dietary control. Well, I could use several uh, uh, unpleasant descriptors to describe exactly that opinion. We now know for certain that's not the case. And how do we know that? It's because we demonstrate that the maximum amount of insulin the pancreas can produce, which is a measure of the beta cell mass, actually slowly goes back to completely normal over two years. And there's one other thing that has escaped attention in diabetes. In 2015, in separate studies, we showed that the pancreas is small and shrunken in type 2 diabetes. It's a little shriveled thing. We demonstrated using the direct data set that over two years of remission, it will increase in volume and go back to normal smoothness. So the morphology of the pancreas goes back to normal. You are getting rid of type 2 diabetes. It's not well controlled and therefore, like UKPDS, going to go downhill. And that's a really important message. 
so difficult to get across to uh, to doctors when some experts are providing information that's based very much in a fixed belief system. Yeah. And like you imagine, like at the moment, we, we're getting this interest through what's been achieved so far, but you can imagine as more and more people get success, more and more people are going to want to get involved with these sort of treatments. Like they, they're going to understand. And, and that's when we're going to see, I guess, the real numbers drop. Ah, <laughs> now that's, that brings us onto a, almost a different plane, Ray, because you mentioned the sort of national and global uh, pattern. And we've got to look to the proximal causes of this matter of the whole population putting on weight. In the last uh, 30 years, uh, average weight of men, average weight of women has gone up by 10 kilograms. Nothing to do with diabetes. It's a population thing. Why is that? Well, enter stage left the processed food industry. Here we have the matter of production of foods that are formulated to make people eat more with getting the the sweet spot for the right content of sugar, right content of salt, uh, the um, the composition, the feel of the food in the mouth, all of this is aimed at that. And we know from separate studies that eating convenience foods, uh, basically processed foods, people will take in more calories just without thinking, just natural appetite, because of course that's what these things are designed for. So until we get politicians to realize that they are responsible for what one might regard as child abuse, just making children fatter than they should be. Same for adults, promoting ill health. And it's because everything is poisonous uh, if the dose is right. Food is poisonous in excess, especially when we're talking about type 2 diabetes. So until we cross this Rubicon of getting legislators to live up to their responsibilities, I'm afraid we're not going to see a big drop in numbers. Certainly, those who can will, but they're going to be a small number globally. So I think we have a responsibility to try and take the argument to legislators. This is not uh, an anti-food company business. Food companies will do just fine given the right level playing field to compete upon. And I can even offer evidence for that because when the discussion about the sugar-sweetened soft drinks was raging in Britain, the manufacturers and their organizations were putting out information that this is never going to work. It won't cause reformulation. It's going to cause a drop in profits and unemployment. What actually happened is we've taken 30,000 tons of sugar per year out of the food chain in the UK. And guess what? The profits of the food companies, the soft food companies involved, have steadily gone up. They're published information so we can see that. And guess what? They've been reformulated. The sugar content has been dropped in accordance with the limits uh, promoted by the legislation. And it's an object lesson as to what can be achieved by reasonable legislation. So it is a brilliant example that legislators need to wake up to. And we as doctors and healthcare professionals need to really bring it to the legislator saying, why are you poisoning your own uh, subjects? You're talking about personal freedom, but hey, aren't you interested in taxation because a health system costs money? They're probably not interested in personal misery and disease causation and prevention, but they're certainly interested in money. So we've got to make this information common currency. Now, there are very well-funded organizations trying to shout in the opposite direction. So this is an uphill struggle, but recognizing the battle to be joined is obviously the first step. Absolutely. Now, if there was a, a couple of pieces of uh, research you think that uh, health professionals should read, what would it be? <laughs> uh, I think 
The original CounterPoint study, back, published back in 2011, it was the most quoted paper in diabetologia for two years. So that paper. Now, I point it out because it is a study of 11 people. Now, the evidence-based medicine uh, uh, disciples may say, oh, you can't believe small studies. But hang on. What studies are important in medicine? It's the small ones that are testing a prior hypothesis. So when Leonard Thompson was given that injection 100 years ago and his blood glucose dropped, it was game, set and match. It was insulin that was missing in type 2 diabetes. It could be provided. So N equals 1 studies show a huge effect size. Also, for instance, when penicillin was given to a child with meningococcal meningitis for the first time, hey, this illness with a 100% death rate was cured. So N equals 1 studies are important. Small studies that illustrate prior hypotheses to be tested are wildly important. They will show a big effect size. If you need a few thousand people, as in a drug study, you're looking at a small effect size, maybe a very impressive P number, P less than 0. 0.000 whatever. But it don't matter because you and I deal with real people and it's the effect size that matters. So counterpoint, that's my number one study. The second study uh, would have to be the two-year report of direct. That's published in Lancet, Diabetes and Endocrinology. And that shows just what's possible in primary care. Because on the one hand, with a counterpoint study, we have the explanation of type 2 diabetes, a disease of too much fat in liver and pancreas. On the other hand, we have the practical outcome of that, which is specified training with a simple, feasible approach to doing it can produce a population effect. So those are my two, Ray. That's great. I'll put the uh, li links onto those at the uh, end of this so people can find it. Now, okay, the health pr healthcare professionals that are watching this, what, what, what's, what, what's some advice that they could implement tomorrow that could improve their outcomes? Firstly, that a choice needs to be offered to people with diabetes. They can achieve uh, potential remission or at least amelioration of type 2 diabetes. It's not easy, but it's worth doing, so worth doing. Or you can have conventional therapy. That's the one thing. The second is to realize that individuals differ, and it's got to be an individual choice. And amongst that individual choice, I just point out a complexity that isn't often thought about. Please don't refer an individual for uh, advice about, for instance, diet. It's the family. And this is relevant because if the spouse or uh, partner or significant others or close group of friends of the person in front of you isn't going to support a person in trying to achieve uh, 15 kilograms weight loss, then it's not going to happen. And so there is a phase of decision-making that has to affect the wider family. That's my second point. It's really a very important one. And the third point is, please stand up and shout loudly to legislators. We need to recognize the dangers of chronic food poisoning and do something about it. Now, you mentioned that chronic food poisoning. I've sort of come across some research that talks about, uh, is it uh, nutrient toxicity, where... Um, insulin uh, resistance is a protective mechanism by the body. Have you seen that? No, I haven't seen it. But the insulin resistance literature is one I'm very familiar with. I cut my teeth on, as a research fellow. I had a, a fortune to have an MRC research fellowship back in uh, 1981. I cut my teeth on researching insulin receptors. I demonstrated that insulin receptors were not important in type 2 diabetes. Guess what? The field wouldn't accept. It was enormously difficult to publish, especially in the United States. Insulin receptors were everything. And there was a bit of a bar to publication of anything that challenged that. And that was my initial 
uh, introduction to the field of insulin resistance. And I've watched with horror as this bandwagon has lumbered on and become a disease entity in its own right. It's a mistaken concept. And I would just point out a single paper. I, I wrote a commentary in the journal Diabetes in 2012 in which I used data from Leaf Group, who'd done a vast number of uh, measurements of insulin sensitivity using clamps in a large population. And the normal population had a distribution like so. The population with diabetes are entirely inside that. It is not a uniquely insulin-resistant condition. There are lots of people walking around with the same degree of insulin resistance. And in fact, if you were to specify a degree of insulin resistance, there are more people in the population without diabetes than there are with diabetes. The point is that being at the more resistant end of the spectrum, you're more likely to be shunting carbohydrate into fat in the liver, stacking up those liver stores and beginning to stoke the twin cycles that begin to run on. So insulin resistance as a protective mechanism. No, that's just nonsense. How does that fit in in an, in an evolutionary sense? I really uh, can't see that that is a common sense approach to this. Certainly, there may be data that seems to look like that, but I would just point out we've got to view this as a whole and take a common sense approach to a common condition. That sounds good. And how about uh, with uh community members that might uh, watch this, what what could they do? Obviously, in, uh, hand in hand with their doctors, <laughs> uh, what could they do tomorrow to uh, improve their condition? I think recognising that we as people cannot tolerate an excess of calories being carried around in our bodies. Now, some individuals, to be fair, can tolerate it fairly well. But even those people who are very large and don't have diabetes have trouble due to carrying around this excess, uh, this excess fat, like arthritis of the knees, all the bowel troubles, all the heartburn, everything to do with obesity is bad. But if we wind back to just the ordinary folk, because most people aren't uh, markedly larger than the rest of the population. But many people who are no longer young are heavier than they used to be at the age of 21. And this is the point I'd like to draw to the attention of everyone. If you've put on weight from the age of 21, all of that weight is lard. I'm sorry, but this is important that it's stated very bluntly. It's not increase in bone mass. It's not more liver. It's not more brain even. It's increase in fat stores. Very rarely. An individual may deliberately hypertrophy their muscles, and of course, that's an exception. But for most people, all the weight they gain after they're 21 is excess to requirements and potentially going to reduce their quality of life. So, Ray, one of the common questions that I've been asked as a doctor dealing with diabetes over the years is a person who comes in and says, look, why have I got type 2 diabetes? All my friends are fatter than me and they don't have it. Well, we now know the answer to that because it's not a matter of being above a certain BMI. That's irrelevant. If we look at the whole of type 2 diabetes in the UK, half of the whole population of newly diagnosed folk have a BMI under 30. They are non-obese. And one in 10 has a BMI in the normal range, so-called normal range. So we need to wake up to this because my first patient who battered a pathway to my door and was so determined to get rid of their diabetes came just at the point I was realizing that the liver fat was the key to the whole thing. And so when they asked me, how can they get rid of their diabetes because they wanted this? I said, well, you know, you probably need to lose a lot of weight. This person's BMI was 24, but they'd put on weight since they were 21. And guess what? This is the person I referred to before, 16 and a half years later. This person still has no diabetes and they're running along at the 
21-year-old weight with the BMI just under 20. Now, people might say, oh, that's a bit thin, isn't it? Hey, <laughs> look, that's within the normal range. Some of us are built like I am, and I'm a slight guy, and my BMI has always hovered at the lower end of the normal range, but that's just me. And so individuals are individuals, and we need to wake up as doctors to stop applying epidemiology and to start applying simple individual care. If a person has a BMI of 24, but it should really be 19, clearly they need to lose weight. And at this moment, we're running the Retune study, which is actually studying this phenomenon. And indeed, I can already say that, yes, of course, people with type 2 diabetes can lose weight and get rid of their diabetes when they don't look fat to start with. So this is type 2 diabetes is nothing about obesity. It's not due to obesity. This is a million miles from what people talk about as fat shaming. It's a recognition that some individuals are prone to get this terrible disease when they're carrying around too much fat above their own personal fat threshold. Now, when I explain that to a person in clinic, they lock onto it. And it's probably the single most lock-on throughable concept that I would put over in a, a single consultation. So personal fat threshold, not epidemiology. Yeah, 100%. And uh, the, the uh, client base I work with is Indigenous Australians. And uh, what, what uh, research has shown with that is I think uh, the increase in insulin production and, and, the, and the onset of the process started at a BMI of about 23, 24 on average. But the responsiveness to treatment is phenomenal. And, and we're hit so hard in community by uh, heart disease and type 2 diabetes. But the response to treatment, once we get these programs in there, is, is phenomenal. It's, so yes. there's, a, there's a great response. And so a lot of these people do have lower BMIs. Indeed. And so there is the ethnic difference. So people, South Asian ethnicity, Far Eastern, and of course, Aboriginal, do have a lower range of BMI uh, for health. But there's a simple bottom line, because if a person has type 2 diabetes, that person has got more fat on board than they should have. So we need to let the scales drop from our eyes and see through ethnicity, population data, and everything, and manage the person sitting in front of us in clinic. There is a difficulty of persuading people in societies where carrying around reasonable amounts of fat is associated with success of the value of actually losing it. And that is a cultural sensitivity that needs to be uh, at the front of our minds. But I'm, assured, I'm sure you're highly tuned into that, that phenomenon. Well, look, it's been great chatting with you. Uh, thanks for taking the time. I know you're a busy man, uh, but uh, you know we've got to keep this uh, momentum going with this message and, and get it out there. So thanks so much for your time. And uh, I look forward to uh, chatting with you in the future. Many thanks, Ray. It's been a pleasure. All the best with your efforts. Bye-bye.